Hello, and welcome back to Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon, and I'm glad you could join me for this edition of the show. A huge shout-out to everyone who listened to last week's inaugural episode. It certainly exceeded my expectations as far as the number of listeners who tuned in. So thank you all, and hopefully you're with us again this week. Today we're going to have a look back at the action that transpired in Week 1 before moving ahead to preview all of the news, notes, and of course betting lines for Week 2. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with comments, questions, or suggestions regarding the show, the CFL, or just betting in general, don't hesitate to hit me up on Twitter, at kdrive88, that's K-D-R-I-V-E-8-8, or visit firstlinepicks.com. Well, Week 1 is often a roller coaster ride in the CFL, and this year's first taste of action was no exception. We saw a couple of pretty incredible comebacks in Alberta, with Montreal coming up just short of an improbable win over the Eskimos, and Ottawa shocking the Calgary Stampeders in achieving their first ever win at McMahon Stadium as a franchise. It's often said in sport that no lead is ever safe, and the CFL is the shining example of that. We also saw the Tiger Cats grind out a win over the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, who almost pulled off a late comeback themselves with third stringer Isaac Harker in the game, after Zach Caleros was unfortunately knocked out on the first play. And Mike Riley's Lions debut proved to be a bit of a downer as the Bombers' defense largely kept them under wraps. Alright, so let's start with a recap of the season opener between the Riders and Tie Cats. As you know, I was on Hamilton minus two and a half, along with pretty much everyone else I came into contact with, and that line ended up closing at minus four and a half. So the Tiger Cats did end up covering both numbers, but this was much more of a sweat than I think a lot of us expected after Caleros got knocked out on the opening series. Hamilton's offense really struggled, and Jeremiah Masoli never looked comfortable to me. I thought he had some happy feet back there and let a lot of balls fly before getting properly set. I think you can chalk some of that up to early season rust, but Saskatchewan's defense did an excellent job of limiting the big play with only two passes hitting for more than 20 yards. Brandon Banks burned Nick Marshall for a 40-yard touchdown in the second quarter, but outside of that they were kept largely under wraps. In all honesty, without a punt return touchdown in the third quarter, I think there's a good chance Hamilton lets this one slip away. Well, let's give credit to the Hamilton defense as well. Obviously you're in a situation where the other team has lost their starting quarterback, and if you're a Riders fan, it's looking like deja vu all over again trying to deal with Caleros getting hurt, but I definitely didn't mind the game they called on offense. Craig Dickinson said he wanted to feed William Powell the ball 20 times, and they ended up doing just that. I thought Powell kept them in the game, but they couldn't move the ball at all through the air with Cody Fajardo. He played a safe game and didn't turn the ball over, but this offense didn't complete a pass for more than 5 yards in the first half of the football game, and you're just not going to win many games under those circumstances. It was certainly notable the direction the offense went in after Isaac Harker got inserted, though. He quickly put up 128 yards on 14 attempts, and that had us Hamilton backers sweating until the final whistle. Edmonton-Montreal was another game where we saw an absolutely dreadful offensive showing through three quarters from one of the participants, Montreal in this case. Edmonton was able to move the ball at will against an Alouette defense that I was actually pretty disappointed in. Montreal targeted their defensive backfield in free agency and appeared to upgrade significantly, and Trevor Harris goes out and shreds them for 450 yards. Meanwhile, you've got Antonio Pipkin on the other side generating less than 100 yards worth of offense in three quarters of football. And somehow Vernon Adams comes into the game for the fourth quarter and 25-8 Eskimos is suddenly 25-25 with two minutes to go. I have to say, that's not the type of performance I was anticipating when Adams entered the ball game. 
Obviously, we ended up with a bit of a bad beat on the under 51.5 with a 31-point explosion in the fourth quarter, but for their sake, it was nice to see Montreal show a pulse. If that wasn't the most surprising turn of events in the second half of a football game this week, what we saw out of Ottawa on Saturday night certainly was. I wasn't high on this team coming in as I thought they'd lost too many pieces. You'll always get a game out of Rick Campbell and I figured the Red Blacks could maybe hang around for a half before the Stamps pulled away and it sort of looked like that might be what was going to happen, but it turns out the Stampeders were the team that ended up hanging around before it finally slipped away late. That minus 7 number that the market was all over was still in play until the last few minutes, but we can thank Trey Roberson and his three picks for that. This was one of the lousier performances I've seen out of Bo Levi Mitchell in that offense in recent memory, which is ironic because that side of the ball remained largely intact while it was the defense that lost so many stars. Calgary couldn't get the run going at all, and they pretty much stopped trying by the third quarter. Ottawa's defensive line really impressed me with the way they owned the line of scrimmage, but it was odd to see Calgary shelve the run with a lead in the second half. On the other side, you had Ottawa offensive coordinator Winston October refused to stop running the ball, and eventually he just plain wore out a Calgary defense that was nonetheless responsible for most of the points that their team did end up scoring. If Davis doesn't chuck what was basically two pick sixes, this game might not have even been all that close. I was most looking forward to the BC-Winnipeg game that capped off the week, and that one didn't disappoint. The Bombers were a little sluggish on offense in the early going, but they stuck with the game plan we've come to expect out of them, and at the end of the evening they put together a win that would probably fall into the business-as-usual category, with Andrew Harris in the shorter passing game grinding away at the BC defense, and eventually passing that 30-point threshold that was commonplace for them last season. I think the bigger story in this game had to be the way Winnipeg's defense really contained Mike Riley and an offense that people have such high hopes for this season. As I mentioned last week, BC really struggled on the ground last year, and I wasn't sure if they'd properly address this area of weakness. Early returns suggest that they have not, or at least their coaching staff doesn't feel confident that they have. The Lions only attempted four rushes in the entire game, essentially ending the contest with a big old goose egg on the ground, and this really derailed their offense in the second half. They did hit on the long ball a few times early, and people had to be excited when Riley connected on back-to-back -back bombs in the first quarter, but the Bombers did a good job of adjusting, and eventually when a team is no threat at all to run the ball, options in the passing game start to get closed off, and it showed with no points for BC in the final 25 minutes of the football game. Fortunately, Brandon Rutley brought a kickoff to the house late in the first half, and this went a long way towards hitting our over 51.5, which was never in serious trouble and did cash early in the fourth quarter. If the casual money I was expecting might come in on BC on game day did come in, the books were unfazed as Winnipeg actually closed as slight favorites after sitting at plus two for most of the week. Overall, I was pleased with our performance last week in regards to what transpired in the marketplace. We beat the market on all three sides that we backed, and of course the Tiger Cats and Bombers did go on to cash while Calgary came up short. Week 1 results naturally play a significant role in what lines we see in Week 2, so without further delay we'll break down the three games on this week's schedule, one which has the Stampeders, Bombers, and Alouettes sitting out on a bye week. Week 2 of course begins with Thursday Night Football, which has the Rough Riders paying a visit to Ottawa. The market has wasted no time in reacting to Ottawa's opening week victory, installing them as minus six favorites at the opening bell, a number which has since dipped down to minus five or five and a half at most books. The total opened at 49, and this number got absolutely hammered, taking barely more than an hour to plummet to 46, before continuing to trend downwards to 43 and a half. 
It appears to have bottomed out there, and we're now seeing 44, 44 and a half at most shops. It's rare to see this kind of movement on a total, and you have to wonder what the thought process was to open this just short of 50 points between two teams that combined for around 60 rushing attempts between them in their opening games and saw strong efforts from their defenses. I was anticipating the Red Blacks being favored by two and a half or perhaps three in this contest, so I'm obviously a little surprised to see this pushing a touchdown. Zach Caleros being unavailable presumably played a big role in this, but he didn't play last game either for all intents and purposes. So it's going to be Cody Fajardo getting the start, and he didn't exactly wow us in relief last week. But in fairness to him, the Riders called a very safe and conservative game while he was out there. So the opportunity to impress was going to be pretty limited. Saskatchewan did open up the playbook and start taking some deeper shots when they inserted Isaac Harker towards the end of the game, and that was interesting in that it tells me they're more comfortable stretching the field with the rookie than they are Fajardo. To Harker's credit, he hit on several longer passes and had the Riders in position to steal a victory right up until the end. Coach Dickinson has stated that he expects Harker to be a part of the offense in this game as well, and personally I like this approach. Not everyone likes a musical quarterback situation, but I always say you should use every weapon in your arsenal. The Riders signed Winnipeg cast off Brian Bennett this week as well, and I doubt he sees game action this quickly, but I thought he showed well in preseason, simply getting caught up in a numbers game in Winnipeg, and it wouldn't surprise me if we eventually see him getting reps in this offense as well. But to get back to the here and now, regardless of who's getting the snaps, I expect we're going to see another run-heavy game plan centered around William Powell. Saskatchewan ran almost as often as they passed on first down against Hamilton, and while Powell didn't break free for any huge gainers, he was consistently productive, with the Riders' run game as a whole grading successful on 70% of their attempts. Ottawa is coming off a game where they completely neutered Calgary's rushing attack, and the Riders are going to have to get a better push off the line than the Stampeders did if they're going to open holes. Offensive lineman Brendan Labatt missed last week's opener and is now on the six-game injured list, as is Darius Bladdock, who went down against Hamilton, so the Riders' depth on O-line is definitely going to get tested now. This Red Blacks unit only gave up more than five yards on seven of 28 qualifying first-down plays against Calgary, which is, needless to say, exceptional. If they can even come close to that sort of success tomorrow, it could be a long night for the Riders' offense. The Red Blacks suffered one casualty of their own last game out, with defensive lineman J.R. Tavai now on the one-game injured list. On the offensive side for Ottawa, I think there's less of a concern at the quarterback position than there is for the Riders, but it would be reactionary to say we've seen enough to declare that the Red Blacks have the advantage here in this matchup. I thought Dominic Davis had a decent first outing despite throwing four picks. One of those was the fault of his receiver, and another was a deep ball on second and long that essentially served as a punt anyway, but obviously those other two were very costly, and those are mistakes that you can rarely make and still win a football game. So I think Rick Campbell would like to see better protection of the football from his quarterback, but at the same time, I don't think he'd be dissatisfied with Davis's first game as a starter either. Moses Madu was a workhorse last week with 25 carries, and there's no reason to abandon that in favor of the pass with how strong Saskatchewan's secondary is. If Winston October stuck to churning out hard yards on the ground when trailing the Stampeders by two scores, we can be pretty sure he's not going to suddenly air it out against Saskatchewan. The question will be whether they can run effectively enough against the big boys the Riders have on the defensive line to justify another 20-plus carry performance. As good as Madu was on Saturday, only 8 out of 19 Red Blocks first down running plays graded as successful. 
I think that's something that will need to improve in order to pick up first downs against the Riders' defense, which successfully defended 78% of second-down passing attempts and 62% of overall passing attempts against Hamilton. Second-and-long situations are a killer against the Riders, and Ottawa needs to avoid these with production on first down. I fully expect both coaches to commit to the run early tomorrow evening, and this has all the makings of an old-fashioned ground-and-pound type of football game, with an emphasis on the field position battle and limiting unforced errors. This points towards a lower-scoring game, and obviously the market was all over that, with the 49 total getting steamrolled on the under. So hopefully you had time to jump on that, but if not, there's still value to be had in getting more than a field goal in what projects to be a one-possession game where majors might be in short supply. As much as week one is a fresh slate to start each season and we don't truly know how each team is going to perform, you can't completely disregard preseason expectations after just 60 minutes of football, and Ottawa at minus 5.5 is an overreaction in my eyes. Going into Calgary and coming home with a win is certainly a sign that Ottawa is not going to be any sort of pushover in spite of all the players they lost from last year, but we can't forget that Saskatchewan didn't roll over and die either with Caleros going down, nearly pulling out a road win over a Hamilton team that a lot of us picked to win the East this season. I think already having one road game under their belts is going to serve the Riders well in this one, and the Red Blacks are facing a short turnaround with less than five full days between the final whistle in Calgary last Saturday and kickoff in this one. The action looks slightly tilted towards Sask, with the minus six open getting bumped down to five or five and a half, but there's no indication at this point that there's going to be significant movement on this one. I like getting nearly a touchdown in a game that probably won't be decided until the fourth quarter, and thus lean towards the Green Riders to keep it close in the nation's capital tomorrow night. All eyes will be on Mike Riley and the Lions on Friday night as the quarterback makes his return to Commonwealth Stadium in Edmonton, this time as a member of the opposition. The Eskimos find themselves as minus four favorites in this game, and we see our biggest total of the young season with 55.5 as your over-under. Seeing an Edmonton team that many were picking to bring up the rear of the Western Division listed as solid favorites against a BC team that was a trendy Grey Cup pick after just one week is not something I was expecting, but it's also not something I necessarily disagree with either. It was only against the Alouettes, but Trevor Harris putting up 600 yards of offense in his debut has not gone unnoticed, nor is the fact that BC's offense was essentially finished for the night after an early score in the third quarter against Winnipeg. I think the most interesting observation from last week was that the Eskimos committed to a ball control and quick pass style of offense throughout the game, which isn't something they did much of in previous seasons under Jason Moss. Meanwhile, the Lions called a game that was in fact very reminiscent of the offense Riley ran in Edmonton, which was very boomer bust with heavy use of the long ball. This led to a first down success rate of over 70% for the Eskimos, while BC was putrid in this regard, checking in at just 40%. Now you have to factor in the opponent's strength for both teams, it's probably safe to say the Lions faced a tougher defense than the Eskimos did, but there's no denying that the Eskimos ran a more efficient offense than we were expecting, especially with the injuries on the offensive line and Devaris Daniels sidelined as well. If the Lions are going to bounce back on offense, it's clear that they need to find a way to generate something along the ground. Edmonton's defense did a really good job of containing William Stanback last week outside of one long run in the fourth quarter. I'd certainly argue that Stanback is more of an individual threat than John White is at this point in his career, which may not bode well for the Lions, but of course this Eskimos defense is going to have to respect the pass a lot more against Riley than they did against Antonio Pipkin and Vernon Adams. 
I think this week should give us a much better indication of whether or not the Eskimos secondary is sufficiently improved. I think Money Hunter, who is playing at safety for the Esks, might be an area of concern, and I'd look for Riley to test this defense with some longer routes targeting Duran Carter. Edmonton's defensive line is also going to have their work cut out for them in getting pressure on Riley. Considering how often BC elected to call long developing deep balls, I thought their offensive line did well in protection, giving up just a single sack against Winnipeg. The Bombers weren't exactly bringing the house, tending to drop guys into coverage, but all things considered, I'd say the play of the line was probably one of the more positive aspects of the Lions' offense last week. If you recall, one of the reasons why I wasn't as high on the Lions coming into this season as most were was my concern regarding their defense. When you consider the huge time of possession advantage the Bombers had over the Lions, I thought this unit managed to hang in there pretty good last week. They actually did a decent job of limiting the damage on first downs, but that Winnipeg offense is designed to chip away and eventually tire out and frustrate opposing defenses, and that's pretty much what happened in the second half of the game. The Lions only conceded two plays of more than 20 yards in the entire contest, but in the end, Andrew Harris finished with 15 of 19 qualifying rushing attempts graded successful, and that type of pounding will eventually buckle a defense. C.J. Gable is less of a north-south runner than Harris, and I don't think I'd be offending him by saying he's plain and simple not the same quality of back, but if last week is any indication, Edmonton is going to employ a fairly similar strategy as Winnipeg did in attempting to outlast this defense. It's going to be interesting to see what Coach Claybrooks has come up with in his scheming this week to prevent Trevor Harris from doing the same thing that Matt Nichols did to them. Ricky Collins Jr., a former Lion, absolutely killed the Alouettes underneath last week, and I can't help but wonder if a former Eskimo in Aaron Grimes might be playing shallow in coverage to try and interrupt some of those intermediate passing routes with his speed. When I initially saw this line open at minus 4.5, my first instinct was that this was another overreaction to Week 1 results. We've seen this dip slightly down to minus four, but the market seems to have been quick to discard BC and hop on the Edmonton bandwagon. This could indicate that this is a prime spot to back the suddenly undervalued Lions, but one needs to be cautious in just assuming an offense that couldn't score a point in the last 25 minutes of the game last week is suddenly going to find their groove in less than a week of practice. Betters were quite bullish in backing Mike Riley and the Eskimos last season, waiting for an offensive explosion that never really materialized. One factor that could certainly advantage the team with the superior running game is the weather. As of Wednesday night, the forecast for Friday is calling for potential thunderstorms with a high probability of wet weather expected on game day. Such conditions are not well suited for the style of offense BC tried to employ last week under the dome, and inability to pick up yards along the ground would likely be fatal if rain hampers the passing game. I like the idea of buying low on BC here, but Edmonton has had all week to practice at home in rainy weather, creating a situation where home field might truly be an advantage in this game. With that in mind, the rather high over-under total of 55.5 has to get a serious look here. I'm always leery of locking in an over days in advance, in June and July when the wet weather is most likely to occur, but the opposite can be true when eyeing an under. If the forecast doesn't improve, there could be significant money coming in on the under on game day. So if you have an inclination towards betting the under in this one, it would likely be in your best interest to hop on it immediately. Week 2 will conclude on Saturday afternoon with the Battle of Ontario, which sees the Hamilton Tiger Cats hitting the road as minus 3.5 favourites for a matchup with the Toronto Argonauts, who will be playing their season opener after a week 1 bye. The total for this game has hovered around 52 throughout the week.
The Tiger Cats come into this game at 1-0, which was obviously the objective, but I think they'd be the first to agree that last week's win over Saskatchewan wasn't exactly a masterpiece. The offense struggled throughout the game, particularly on second down situations where they posted a lousy 33% of plays graded successful. Jeremiah Masoli is going to need a stronger outing if Hamilton is going to get a leg up on an Argonaut offense that should be improved over last season. It should help that Masoli won't be facing a defense with the same reputation as the Rough Rider unit they faced last week, but the Argonauts are coming in healthy and should be well prepared after having an extra week to get ready for this game. I'm not too worried about Masoli returning to last year's form. Plenty of QBs come out looking a little rusty in week one, and I fully expect an improved Tiger Cats passing attack in this game. Toronto's defensive secondary was a gaping hole last season, and while injuries could rightly be pointed to as the primary reason for that, this group will definitely have to prove their worth on the field before any conclusive assessments can be made. Hamilton already having had one game to work out the kinks should help them here, and I suspect Masoli and Brandon Banks will have the green light to attack this defense with some stretch plays. What's less clear is how the Tiger Cats plan on utilizing the run game. Sean Thomas Erlington had a passable showing in the season opener, seeing the bulk of the carries, but was still limited to under 70 yards. He appeared to suffer some sort of arm injury towards the end of the game, but it wasn't serious enough to actually pull him out. Whether he's at 100% or not, Hamilton appears to have very limited options in the backfield right now, with Cameron Marshall already on the six-game injured list. Recently released Argonaut Anthony Coombs was added to the practice roster this week, but I wouldn't count on seeing him in action on Saturday. Chances are Hamilton is going to come out throwing and challenge the Argonauts to stop them. With the qualifier that they were going up against Cody Fajardo for the bulk of last week's game, Hamilton's defense turned in an all-around solid effort in victory. 60% of opponent pass plays were graded as successfully defensed, and they only conceded 7 plays in excess of 10 yards. Penalty issues aside, there wasn't much cause for concern on this side of the ball, though the normally dependable Delvin Bro appeared to have a bit of an off night. It was certainly anticipated that Hamilton would be without the services of Simone Lawrence for this game, after he took out Zach Caleros with a helmet-to-helmet hit that appeared suspension-worthy. The league did indeed suspend Lawrence for two games, but he has appealed and will therefore be in the lineup on Saturday if the matter isn't resolved by then. This temporarily avoids creating a big hole at the linebacking position, but I'm sure this was still an unwelcome distraction for the team as a whole. Saturday's game will be a big opportunity for Toronto quarterback James Franklin to put last year's forgettable performance in the rearview mirror and solidify his position as the starter going forward. I'm actually quite excited to see what this offense can do under new sideline leadership. On paper, there's a little not to like. The signing of free agent receiver Darrell Walker gives him a dangerous deep threat, and he should draw most of Delvin Bro's attention on Saturday. This should open up things for SJ Green and Armonte Edwards, giving Franklin some options in the passing game. I'm sure they'll still take some shots downfield with Walker, but I'm expecting more of a short yardage ball control offense out of the Argos this season. This roster is bursting at the seams in the backfield, and it's still unclear who's all going to touch the ball on Saturday, but odds are James Wilder Jr. will be given the chance to prove that last season's disappointing performance was the exception, rather than his rookie year where he emerged as an instant star. A strong running game would go a long way towards easing the pressure on Franklin, and I'm guessing this fact will not be lost on new bench boss Corey Chamlin. The Tiger Cats opened at a rather conservative feeling minus 2 in this one, and I'm not shocked at all that this has moved out to minus 3.5. This is the second straight week that the market has been quick to back Hamilton, and betters have also been a little more inclined to the over, pushing it up to 53 at some books. 
I'm probably a little higher on the Argos than most, and I think they have surprise team potential this season, but their ability to contain Hamilton's passing attack is a big unknown that needs to be weighed before committing to one side or the other. Teams opening the season with a bye have had mixed results over the past few years since the league returned to a nine-team circuit, so there's not any sort of established trend in this regard. I'll be watching this line carefully in the lead-up to kickoff, and there are indicators that this number could continue to increase. If you weren't able to get Hamilton before this line hit minus three, I'd probably avoid them. A number moving across three is a big deal in the CFL, as it is in all forms of football, and giving away that extra point is a hefty cost. Right now this appears to be in a bit of a no-man's land, but if we see it move to plus four, I'd give the Argos some serious thought, question marks and all. Summerine was initially in the forecast for Saturday, but it appears now as though the sun will be shining down on BMO Field, which might make that overlook a little more attractive. If I could only make one pick this week, I think I'd gravitate back towards the Thursday night game. In what looks to be a battle between defenses and running backs, and possibly even the punters, the 5.5 points that Saskatchewan is getting is just too many to pass up. This game is a great candidate to be decided by a late field goal, an outcome that would obviously make the Riders a winner on the bet slip, even if it made the Red Blacks a winner in the standings. Alright, I think that will wrap things up for week number two of the show. It was great to have you guys back again, hopefully some new listeners as well, and as I mentioned off the top, you can follow me on Twitter, at KDrive88, or visit FirstLinePicks.com to stay up to date on all the latest betting-related content, or to get in touch. Whoever you're backing this weekend, best of luck, and I look forward to you joining me again next week on Third Down Gamble.